morning, everyone. Listen, it is so good to be here with you today. I'll be honest, I was ready to sit on the front row and just let Becca take the rest of the service. It was like, just open your Bible and teach it. Um, like, one of my passions is to let young communicators get their reps at journey so that they can do what God has made them to do. And Becca, we certainly got to get you up here teaching the Word of God to our people. And Hudson, who was over here worshiping, like, when I was 18, I was just learning to say my, my full name without, like, a stutter. Um, like, he gets up here and just talks like he's been talking to people like you his entire life. How great was that worship team? Put your hands together one more time for those kids. Unbelievable. You just heard about the golf tournament. We are full for the golf tournament. We don't need any more golfers. I don't think we can even take any more golfers. Um, so if you want to play golf next year, if you didn't sign up already, we also have all our whole sponsors. But that golf tournament goes to support our student summer camp in Colorado. And we've got about 20 or 25 students still looking for scholarships. So if you say, man, like I can't play golf, can't do a scholarship, I would love to help send a teenager to camp. I talked to a mom after church today who said someone scholarshiped me to go to camp when my parents were getting divorced in high school. I want to send someone to camp. Literally after this service, you can go across the atrium. There's a student area there. You can just say, I want to sponsor a student or two or five to go to camp. It's $500. All the money you give will go to pay for one of our students to go to camp. We tell the students in our youth group, if you want to come to camp, you sign up. We'll figure out how to make it work. We'll figure out how to help you lean into Jesus. So if you'd like to help do that, we would love to have your help. When you go give on the website, there's a link that's just student camp. You can just sign up for a student scholarship there if you would want to. I hope you'll be able to come back next week for Mother's Day. Uh, if you're a mom or a grandma, um, one of our foster moms, a single mom, um, an aunt, a big sister who's raising her family, we got a cool gift that we're giving away to all the moms in the house next week. We're giving away a little jar that says Stones of Remembrance. It'll have some little pebbles filling the bottom, and then it's filled with some papers that just allow you to make notes of how God is moving in your home and in your family and the church that lives inside your house, prayer requests that your families can give, how you see God's faithfulness in your family, how you are praying for your kids, how God is working at school, how God is working in the job. This is going to be a cool little, we think, spiritual take-home for all our moms and grandmas next week. So bring mom, bring grandma on the way out next week. We'll hand you one of those, and I hope by the end of the summer it's filled with just things that God is doing in your life that you are recognizing. If you have your Bibles today, we're in Matthew chapter 13 for our Bible study time. You can pull your notes out of the bulletin so that you can follow along today. Maybe fire up the Journey Church International app if you want to follow along that way. We're in a series called The Kingdom. We're in the second week of that series. And let me give you kind of the behind-the-scenes reason of why we are in this series. So we've been studying about Jesus' people, what it looks like to follow Jesus, learn His teaching, listen to His teaching, live His teaching... But this series is very specifically about seeing the world the way that Jesus wants us to see the world. I'm going to give you three scriptures that are not on your notes, but if you're a note taker, you might just want to jot down the references because this is really the reason behind this 17-week series that we're in. The first is in Ephesians chapter 1. If you haven't been through Growth Track yet, this is how we start by introducing you to our church. Our goal is to help you know who God is and know his plan and purpose for your life. But listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul said, my prayer for followers of Jesus is that they would begin to see with kingdom eyes and a kingdom heart. 
I'm praying that as you follow Jesus, Paul says, that you'll begin to see the world like God wants you to see the world. Instead of seeing it with your eyes, you'll begin to see it with your soul. That's the purpose of this series, that you will see with your soul the world the way God wants you to see the world. Because Paul would tell the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't always believe what our eyes are telling us. We believe what God has promised us and in faith what we're moving towards. So as followers of Jesus, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We understand differently things in the world and what God is doing. And that gives us a different worldview than the rest of the world. Because Paul would say to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross, this Jesus thing, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent of the, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So the New Testament is filled with this thought and this theme that followers of Jesus see the world differently than everyone else in the world. We see through the veil of what's going on with our eyes and we understand what God is doing in our hearts. So the first part of this 17 weeks is helping you see some key foundational truth that Christians believe about the world. Last week with Pastor Christian Grassi, our church planning resident, we learned the first. We learned that kingdom people have to understand the heart. Because how people respond spiritually to Jesus tells you where their heart is spiritually. So kingdom people watch when seed is sown spiritually, and we're able to understand what's going on in someone's soul just based on how they're receiving what God is doing. So we learned last week that kingdom people understand the condition of the heart. We're going to learn this week that we also understand the condition of the world. So the condition of the heart tells us why people respond the way they respond or don't respond to what Jesus is doing. This week, understanding the condition of the world helps us understand the reality of why things are the way they are and what we're supposed to do with that. What our mission is in the reality of a lost and broken world that needs Jesus. So that'll be our goal today, to understand the condition of what's going on in the world with the eyes in our soul, with the faith that God gives us, with an understanding that not everyone has until they really meet Jesus. That'll be our goal in Matthew chapter 13. Before we uh, always teach through the word of God, we always pray. And our prayer is what Paul said. We ask that God will let us hear with our heart, not our ears. So would you bow your heads with me in our time today here? And if you're watching online, kind of take that deep breath to let your soul settle in this moment. And ask God to open the eyes of your heart so you can see and hear from him today. God, that's our prayer that we wouldn't hear with our physical ears, but we'd hear with our spiritual ears, that we wouldn't see with our physical eyes, but that we would see with our spiritual eyes. God, we cannot see and understand spiritual realities about ourselves or the world unless you show us. So today, as you teach us about the condition of the world, open the eyes of our hearts so we might see by faith and live by faith as we follow Jesus. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So Matthew chapter 13, we're actually going to read two separate parts of a parable. We're going to skip a part in the middle that we'll come back to next week. We'll be in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus is going to tell a parable. And then in verse 36 through 43, he's going to explain that parable. The middle part that we skip this week, we'll teach next week because it's a different parable. It says this, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came. And sowed weeds among the wheat, and then they went away. 
When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. If you're wondering, what does this story mean? Good question. Verse 36, Jesus explains it. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So if you were raised in kind of a traditional church, you probably heard this parable. It's pretty popular. You may have heard it called the parable of the wheat and the tares. In our new international translation today, maybe a little more updated, it's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. There are three lessons inside this parable that help us see the condition of the world the way that kingdom people are supposed to see it. The first lesson is what I call the key to the parable. It's the parable key. Um, And here's what I mean by key. So some of you have have heard my story. Before God called me into ministry, I wanted to, uh, to be a teacher. I wanted to be a high school teacher, history, geography, government. Wanted to be a football coach like my dad. I think the reason I fell in love with those subjects, history, geography, government, was because I fell in love with my history, geography, and government teacher. He was my favorite teacher of all time. I mowed his yard spring through fall once a week. He loved watching our sports teams perform. His name was Mr. Crooks, and he was my favorite teacher of all time, which is interesting because often the subjects we fall in love with are subjects taught by people who we really like. Often the sports we love to play are coached by coaches that we love to play for, and the sports we end up hating are coached by coaches that we didn't care for, and the subjects in school that we don't like much were taught by teachers that we don't like much, which tells us something about Christians. And it tells us something about how important it is for people to understand you and know that you love them. Because often people will be open to things of people that they love. So I want to challenge you, if you're a Christian, don't turn people off to Christianity. Turn people on to Christianity. That's kind of the way that our world works. I love Mr. Crooks. He taught me about history. He taught me about geography. He taught me about government. He taught me about hemorrhoids. You say, how did he teach you about hemorrhoids? My sophomore year, he looked at me and said, Newsom, stop being hemorrhoidal. And I said, I don't know what that means. He said, you're being a pain in my rear. He didn't say rear, went to public school. You're allowed to not say rear and that. But I thought, okay, history, government, like, okay. So he taught me a lot about life and the world. Um, But when we were in the section on geography and we were studying maps, I learned that you can't read a map unless you know the symbols on the map and you can't know the symbols unless you know the key. So when I say the parable key, I mean literally like the symbols on a map. That's what I mean by the parable key. Jesus in verses 37 through 39 translates the entire parable for us. Let me give you the key. You can kind of take notes while I talk. He said, the sower of the good seed, that's me, Jesus. The field is the world. If you're taking notes, you might write next to the world, next to the word world, the word cosmos. That's the Greek word that's used there. That will be important later in the message. The good seeds are kingdom people, people who follow Jesus. The weeds are people 
of the evil one. I don't want to call them evil people because Jesus did not call them evil people. He said they are influenced by the evil one who is the enemy. And he said the enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the natural world. He called it the end of the age, the day when, when everything closes up shop and eternity begins. And the harvesters are angels. So Jesus gives us the key to the parables. It's always like, what does that mean? And Jesus is like, here's what everything is. You, you can take this and go actually read the parable now, and you'll learn all the lessons in the application, which is what we're going to do at the end of the message. But before you do that, here's something that's really important to note. This is what kingdom people believe. We believe all seven of these things. We believe in Jesus. We believe that God created and runs the natural world. We believe that there are kingdom people who are on mission for Jesus. And we believe that there are people bent on evil and doing bad things. We believe that's caused by the devil. We believe that one day this world will end and a supernatural world will begin. And that Jesus says that will be ushered in by angels. But even if you're not a kingdom person. If you're here and you're not a Christian, first, we're really glad you're in our church today. We hope our church is a safe place for people to sit and hear and learn about Jesus before they follow Jesus. They can ask questions. If you have questions, we'd love to answer them. But I see this screen as a great apologetic for the world. Because almost everyone in the world believes 2, 3, 4, and 6. Like even your friends who don't consider themselves Christians... They see, them, they see the world in the natural order of the world. We actually in science have dedicated science to try to figure out how it all came together. Because we see it. See it. We respect it. We honor it. We're trying to figure out how it all works. Everyone that I know believes there are good people and bad people. And they might not have a list of which is which. But it's very easy to see people who hurt vulnerable people and to say they're bad. And to see people who are helping vulnerable people and say, they're like, we all have a list of there, there really are good people and there really are people doing bad things. And everyone believes in number six. I've not met anyone yet who doesn't believe they're going to die. Ted Williams believed that they might be able to bring him back to life if they froze his head cryogenically, but he knew he would die between like that stage and coming back to life. Like, I've not met anyone who doesn't believe six. And I actually believe this screen is a great apologetic. Because it's a great way to talk to your friends who aren't kingdom people and say, what do you think makes people good? And why do you think people do bad things? Where do you think that even comes from? Is there something bigger behind evil? Is there something bigger behind good things? If it's possible that there's anything after this life, should we check into it? Is there a reason everything in the world works the exact same time at the exact same way over and over and over? Like these are great apologetic conversations to have with people because everybody believes two, three, four, and six. And I would say the, the parable key gives us a, a very clear picture for our heads, especially two, three, four, and six, of what's going to happen in the parable. Like we can understand the parable key by what we see, but we can only understand the lessons in our heart by, by what our spiritual eyes see. So the parable key helps us really clearly understand some things. But the parable lessons help us see with our hearts. So what are those lessons? That would be point number two. The first thing Jesus is going to show us is the parable key. Here's what everything means. Next thing he's going to show us are the parable lessons. Like, here, here's what you need to learn from this. And he tells us the parable lessons in verses 40 through 43. Here's, here's what the parable means. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it's going to be at the end of the age. The Son of Man is going to send out his angels, and they'll weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So this really is kind of part two. Like the first parable that Jesus told us last week help us, helped us to see what happens with the good seed. This parable helps us to see what happens with the bad seed. You could say the first lesson is the rest of the story. Because the story started last week and the story goes something like this. Good seeds reproduce. How do you know who's a good seed? They reproduce. Some 30 times, some 60, some 90. Bad seeds, weeds, they're rejected. So like that really is the first lesson of this parable. It's the rest of the story. And here's the story. Go ahead and throw that up on the screen, guys. I'm looking at it, but the people aren't yet. The lesson of the story. Good seeds reproduce. Bad seeds the weeds get rejected. Last time I spoke was Easter weekend. I was having a conversation out in our connection center with Sonny Hartman. He's a man in our church on our spiritual care team who's just awesome. He's got like the best beard in the world. He's kind of a strong looking guy, rides a motorcycle. If you saw him at the front of the church, you wouldn't know whether he wanted to pray with you or hurt you. But, it, but he's very, very, very nice. And he's a very, very soft heart. And I was talking with Sonny outside, and I was like, man, tell me what's going on in your spiritual community. Like, what's spiritual life look like for you right now? And he says, I'm in the leadership track, and I'm loving it. So Journey, our discipleship pathway, has four tracks. Our Jesus track, know and fall in love with Jesus. Our scripture track, develop a biblical worldview. Um, Our life track, learn how to take the scriptures and apply them to whatever you're going through in life. And then our leadership track, learn how to be a disciple who makes disciples. Each of them are one year. And really, the the lightest one we have right now is our leadership track, because we just rolled it out. But the leadership track teaches you to become a disciple who makes disciples. And he said, I'm in this leadership track with Jeff O'Dell, one of our elders sitting back there. And he said, I absolutely love it. He said, don't get me wrong, I've been in Bible studies like my whole life, but I felt like all of those were just to teach me how to learn stuff from me. And I feel like this leadership track is to teach me how to teach someone else how to become a disciple. And he said, I absolutely love it. He said, I had a young dad reach out to me for help. And he said, I feel like for the first time, I'm able to teach him how to help himself because I'm learning how to disciple people rather than just being a disciple. So like... Good soil, good seed reproduces and becomes a disciple who makes disciples. If you're going through that pathway, my goal is we have thousands of people in our church over the next decade who take a year learning how to be a disciple who makes disciples. So instead of just teaching someone what the Bible says, you can teach them what it says about their life, their experience, the application of it, and then how to go teach someone else. Like that's the way that the kingdom expands. But bad seeds, weeds, are rejected. So we should ask this key question. It's a pretty important question. What does a bad seed look like? No one wants to be rejected. So what does a bad seed look like? We're told in verse 41, the son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So the weeds that are rejected are all those things that cause sin and evil. And if I were to tell you as a group of Jesus people, now hang with me here so I don't have to repeat this. I had to repeat it in the 830 because they weren't with me. If I were to tell you that one day God would get rid of everything that causes sin and evil, we would all say a big amen. Amen. Like, how about today? Like, there will be a day when God gets rid of everything that causes sin and evil. However, if I were to say in order to do that, that means he would have to reject every one who causes sin and evil, we would say, wait a minute. Because the second level lesson of this parable is is this. We all live in this spiritual tension, kingdom people, of having this huge desire for God to get rid of sin and evil, while also loving people who are kind of headed for destruction. 
It's like, I want God to get rid of all sin and evil. But to do that, he's got to get rid of sinful people who are running from him. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like if I said, wouldn't it be great if there was a day when there were no more broken families? We would all say, yes. But if I would say in order to do that, God's got to take the mom and dads who invest more in their work than their kids. You've got to get rid of them. And he's got to get the husbands and wives who are running around behind each other and He's got to get rid of them, and he's got to get people who aren't managing their household well. Like, if, if, if we were to say, we want God to get rid of broken families, we'd all say, amen. But if we were to actually begin to name the types of people who cause broken families, we would all say, wait a minute. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my son. That's, my dad. that's somebody I know and love very, very dearly. What do you, like, what do you mean for, for God to fix this? He's got to reject them. I think all of us would say we want God to get rid of poverty. We would like to live in a world where there is no poverty. And the way God gets rid of poverty, Jesus said the poor will always live among you, but the poor don't have to live in poverty if generous people will share their stuff. So Jesus says for poverty to be gone, greedy people have to go. Jesus defined greedy people by people who would not be generous with their life and their resources. So we would say we, we want poverty to go. But for God to reject all greedy people, and if greedy people are defined by people who don't share their stuff, that would impact a lot of people I care about deeply. We would say we want everything that causes sin and evil to go, but what about everyone who kind of lives in that world? I think we'd all like to live in a world where there's no more war, amen? We would like the Vladimir Putins of the world not to be able to invade their neighbors. But James says factions and wars come from people who just have selfish ambitions. Their life is all about them. So for God to give us a world without war, he's got to reject anyone who lives for themselves. That's some people that we know. So there's a tension. I'd like to live in a world where babies are not aborted anymore. The vast majority of abortions are performed on unwanted pregnancies. The vast majority of unwanted pregnancies come from people who are having sex with each other before they're married or outside the person that they're married to. So for us to maybe live in a world where there's no more abortion, God would say, I've got to get rid of all the people who are having sex outside of marriage. Some of us would say, hang on, hang on, I know, I know someone that looks like me in the mirror. You should, like, is that how it works? Yep. That's the tension. We want evil to go, but we're living in relationship with people who are running from God. So like, what, what, do, what, do, what do we do? It's interesting. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we live by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 would say we do that because we all believe we're going to stand before God and this world is not there, all there is. There is an eternal world and the eternal world is made up full of people who are either rejected by God or rewarded by God. So verse 11 says, because we know all this, because we know it is what it's like to fear the Lord. Because we believe there's an afterlife that rewards and rejects people. So we try to persuade men. We try to bring people to Jesus. Like because we walk by faith, because we're kingdom people, because we don't believe life ends at the funeral. Like we try to persuade men. I was in Guatemala last week with one of our mission teams high up in the mountains of a village called La Cedras where we've been working for four years as a church, providing kind of infrastructure for this community. We have, I think, nearly 100 people at our church who sponsor kids in this village to make sure they get health care and that they're fed well and that they can go to school and that they have clothing provided. And one of, one of our people saw their sponsor kid while we were on this trip, and they brought him a big bag of gifts after being away for two years because COVID didn't allow anyone to travel. 
And she gave her sponsor kid this, you know, like a soccer ball and some soccer cleats. And we gave every family in the village enough food to eat for a month as a gift from our church to their village. Um, It was an incredible time. But I don't know that I've ever seen anyone declare how important Jesus is more clearly than this lady in our church did to her sponsor kid. She gave them all the gifts and then they lined the family up, the mom, the dad, the, the, her, her sponsor kid, his brother and his little sisters. And with her interpreter, she said like, Eber, here, here's what you need to know. She said, this soccer ball I gave you will, like, it will, it will eventually bust. And the shoes that we gave you will eventually wear out. And the soccer goal that I'm giving you for you and your friends will eventually break and the food will run out. Nothing we're giving you is going to be good enough forever. But Jesus offers eternal love and joy and peace. And the thing more than anything that I want to be able to give to you is Jesus. She was crying. All of us around this circle were crying. And I just thought, man, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone more passionately say, you need Jesus to someone they care about. And honestly, with our physical eyes, it's pretty easy on the mission field to look at someone in the mountains of Guatemala and think they have so little that Jesus would mean so much. He means so much. But also with our physical eyes, we look at some people that we live around and we think they have so much. Jesus would mean so little. So we don't, through tears, tell them about Jesus. And that is only true if we do not believe that God rejects people for eternity. Because if we believe God rejects people for eternity who don't receive him, then we are very passionate to say, what you have for your eternal journey is so little, but Jesus offers so much. Amen? Like, we need to be a people who believe all of the truth of Scripture that says you have enough to get through high school. You have enough to get through college. You have enough to be a really successful, comfortable American. But you are not ready for an eternity unless you know Jesus. Like that's the tension that we live in. We want evil to go away. But we're not yet passionate to tell people how that happens through a relationship with Jesus. So Paul said no, because we live by faith, because we understand eternity's coming... We are persuaded to tell people about Jesus. And hopefully that leads to lesson number three, that knowing eventually there will be a day when people who are right with God, not only will they be clearly seen, but they'll be finally with Jesus, and they'll be eternally with Jesus. Like, it'll be really, really clear when God does his thing one day who really belongs to Jesus, and they will finally be with him, they will fully be with him, they will eternally be with him. That really is the question these two parables are trying to ask. Who's in, who's out? How do we know who really is a follower of Jesus? In October, we'll take five weeks to study through the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John was written to convince Christians that they're saved. Because a lot of people want to make, like, how can I know for sure that I'm really connected to Jesus and that my eternity is okay? We'll take five weeks in 1 John. The whole book is about it. In this text, Jesus takes one verse to just say, listen, it's going to be really, really clear one day who is fully and eternally with God. He says in verse 33, or verse 43, the righteous are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So whoever has ears, let them hear. Tremendous lessons from this parable for our hearts spiritually. Something for our eyes to see, the parable key. Something for our hearts to learn, the parable lessons. But then number three, something for our hands to do. I would call this the parable application. So our eyes see the key, our hearts 
receive the lessons and they're important, but we say, what, like, what do I do with that? What do I do with that tomorrow because of what I've learned? How do I apply this parable? Let's read it over again now that we know everything, what we know, and kind of put some pieces together. Let's start in verse 24 again. It says, Jesus told them another parable. Now we know the story behind the story. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. We know who the man and what good seed is. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came, we know who that is, and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. We know what weeds are. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What do we learn? Four applications real quick. First application is this. All of us who are kingdom people are almost responsible to grow spiritually. And this parable tells us that we have to grow spiritually even though we're surrounded by enemies. Kingdom people are responsible to grow spiritually even when they are surrounded by enemies. That's the application of this parable. I'm going to put you in a field, and I'm going to expect you to grow, and you're going to be surrounded by enemies. Say, Pastor Christian, man, I love to grow, but nobody in my family is a Christian. You're responsible to grow anyway. Pastor Christian, I, like, I would, like I would really love to grow, but nobody in my senior class is a Christian. You're responsible to grow anyway. Pastor Christian, I love to walk with Jesus, but my husband or wife, they don't love Jesus. You're responsible to grow anyway. Pastor Christian, I love to go, but man, when I show up at work on Monday morning, nobody in my workplace is a Christian. Like, you are responsible to grow anyway. Like, do you see the application of this parable? I'm going to sow you, and you are going to grow and be fruitful right in the midst of the enemy. That's the way it happens. You are responsible to grow and be fruitful even in the midst of the enemy. So one of our core beliefs as a church is spiritual growth. It literally is the first one that I chose. Twelve years ago when we were on this church planning journey, I was asked this question. Christian, if your church had ten or 10,000, what for you would make it a failure? And I said, if no one was growing spiritually, it'd be a failure. If we had 10 people not growing spiritually, it'd be a total failure. If we had 10,000 people not growing spiritually, it'd be a total failure. I don't know that I would consider us a church if no one's growing spiritually. So, like, that's going to be really, really important to us. This has just been my heart since God called me to ministry in the summer of 1998. In the fall of 1998, I'm laying in my dorm room at Liberty University. I'm reading through Scripture, and I read through Matthew chapter 7. God has called me to youth ministry at the time, and I read Matthew 7, 24 and 25, that the only people who make it are people who live their life founded on the rock of who Jesus is. And I thought, man, if I ever get to be a youth pastor and I ever get to name my own youth group, I'm going to name it the rock, and here's why. Jesus didn't say if, he said when the storm comes. Like the Friday storm. Anybody remember the Friday storm? He's not if, when the storm comes. If, you're on, if, you're, if your life is based on Jesus, you're going to be all right. And I thought, man, I don't know of any greater storm than the years of 12 through 18. I don't know of any greater storm than the years of middle school and high school. I don't know of any greater storm than getting your driver's license for the first time or having to say no to the party or no at the party. I don't know of any greater storm than having a boy or a girl reject you because you won't do what they want to do with them sexually. I don't know of any greater storm than social media for teenagers. Yet, if your life is founded on Jesus, you grow anyway. Amen? Like, this is the application of this story you are responsible to grow spiritually. You say, I'm surrounded by weeds. So, 
You are responsible to grow spiritually right in the middle of the field. That's just the way it works. So I would encourage you, maybe this year, once you begin to weed out the things and the people in your life that are causing sin and evil, once you begin weeding them out, giving them less access, unfollowing them, turning off the TV, unsubscribing, once you begin to weed out the things and the people that are causing sin and pain and evil in your life, the answer for some of you is because, Christian, I love those people. I don't want to, I don't want to weed them out because I love them. And that really is maybe the secret hope of this parable, is application point number two. Christians have hope because the wheat is planted among the weeds. This is where I personally believe that the church for the last 50 years has taught this message incorrectly, just when you look at the Greek language. The church for years has taught this message as this, the weeds are, are what Satan sows in the church. So in a building like this, there are people who are real Christians and there are people who are not real Christians. If you read the key of the parable, that's not what it says. It says the seeds are sown in the cosmos, the world. You say, what's the big deal? Let me tell you what it means and what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is Satan has sown his seeds in the church. What it does mean is God has sown his seeds in the world. Yeah, like you see that? Like, do you see the difference? God's like, you don't have to worry about Satan getting in my backyard. I'm already in his backyard. Like, I am sowing the seeds of my people and my gospel and my kingdom and my hope all over the world. And the hope is that even though there's a lot of weeds, they are right next to wheat. And boy, you better look out because when that wheat starts rubbing up against them, like you and I used to be weeds and God turned us into wheat, the Holy Spirit can fill what God is doing in our lives and it can begin to give us life. So our hope, like Christian said last week, is we just get to keep sowing because we're growing together until the very end. We get to keep sowing. Some of you have people in your life, you've been trying to get them to church, they're not going to come to church. Try a different strategy. If they have kids, figure out how to get their kids to our kids camp the first week of June. Then their kids will get them to church. If they have students, scholarship their student to go to Colorado with our student ministry. There's a very good chance their student will come home and make them go to church. Have them come do serve week with you. The goal of our serve week this year is serve week, serve with a friend. Because almost everyone in our community believes good people should help hurting people. And we have people who never want to walk in the doors of our church who, if they were told they could help hurting people in the community, would do it in an instant because it'll make them sleep better at night. Leverage everything to keep sowing seed because the hope of the world is that the wheat is sown right in the midst of the weeds. And we get to keep growing. Now, that brings a little tension for application point number three, but I think this is really important. I think this, for some of you, may be the most important part of the message. When we look at application point number three, we're going to realize that as Christians, we anticipate that God is going to weed out the weeds. But we don't make that our primary focus in life. We have this tremendous anticipation that God is going to weed out the weeds. But that is not our primary concern. The word weed is an interesting weed. It's actually the word uh, zizania, which which is a weed in ancient Rome that very closely resembles wheat, except it doesn't have any grain. Which means, these weeds looked exactly like wheat. 
until they were both full grown and then one had grain and one was totally empty. But you could not tell until they were finally and totally matured which was which. And listen to the disciples of 2,000 years ago and some of you listen to yourself. We're going to Jesus saying, Jesus, you want us to get all these weeds out of your church? You want us to pick the weeds? You know why I think this parable came after last week's parable? Because I think the holy huddle of the dumb 12 that Jesus called apostles went back together and had a small group and held a fantasy draft of which one of the soils all of their friends were and went back to Jesus and said, do you want us to get rid of soils one, two, and three? Jesus is like, you're so dumb. (laughs) You have no idea what's inside someone's heart. And you may actually tear out some wheat that just hasn't matured yet. Can you like let God be God? To put it another way, can you stop being a fruit inspector and can you become a farmer instead? Amen? Like put down your checklist and pick up a shovel. If you're worried about somebody in your spiritual community who doesn't look like they have any fruit, help them grow. Don't remove them. I love what Pastor John MacArthur taught about this back in the 1980s as he moved through this text. It's a powerful statement. He says, in addition to the fact that the church age is for evangelism and not judgment, Christians are not qualified to infallibly distinguish between true and false believers. Every time the church has presumed to do that, it has produced an ungodly bloodbath. Starting in Luke chapter 9, when James and John... Leave that quote on the screen for a minute. Starting in Luke chapter 9, when James and John passed through Samaria, and it appeared everyone rejected Jesus, and they're like, you want to kill him? That's in the Bible, for those of you who have not read it. They said no to Jesus. Should we kill them? And Jesus is like, are you out of your mind? Of course we're not going to kill them. In about the mid-300s, the Roman emperor Constantine was going out to battle. He fell asleep and had a dream of a huge shield in the sky that had a cross on the midst of it. He became a Christian. He made all of his army become Christians and get baptized. And then in the name of Christianity and the church, he literally destroyed nations. Years later in the Middle Ages, the crusades of the Christian church would try to kill everything that wasn't Christians, but very specifically Muslims and Jews, which to this day hate Christians because Christians wanted to weed out the weeds before it was time to the Protestant Reformation. When some Catholic priest stood up and said, I don't think we're doing this the right way. And the state-run, state-owned Catholic church tried to kill everyone that was against them. Like, that's what happens when Christians take matters into their own hands. And here we are, as a church community, trying to figure out, real Christian, not a real Christian. Weed them out or water them. Listen, put down the checklist. Pick up a shovel. I want Journey to be a church of farmers who recognize I don't see any fruit, but maybe you're just not full grown yet because I don't know who's full grown and who's not full grown. I had a transformational experience in the mountains of Guatemala this week. One of the new villages that our church is sponsoring to bring in fresh water and build a school building and build a church building and build a home for the pastor and build some sustainable living and security practices high in the hills of a village called Peña Blanco, Guatemala, literally on the border of Honduras. When you stand in Peña Blanca, you look over to the mountains of Honduras. And this village that takes an hour to get to, standing in the back of a cattle truck because there are no roads to get there, where 173 families live, 
who need everything from education to medicine to clean water to Jesus. And we go and meet the pastor of the church who we're going to build him a building and we're going to build him a home that has electricity and water for his wife and his three beautiful little girls. And we meet this pastor, Pastor Rigoberto. Did I say it right that time, Michelle? Pastor Rigoberto. And he's a coffee farmer. And so he makes his living. And while we're meeting with him and talking with him and praying with his wife and kids and seeing his house, I began to walk through his coffee plantation, about an acre of land that is his coffee plantation. So he makes his living. And I was so impacted by it that I took a bunch of pictures that I want to show you. This is not a marijuana farm for those of you like, are you sure? It's like, yeah, it's coffee. Trust me, it's coffee. I noticed that he had all these, what looks like to you, trash bags full of dirt. This is about the size of a Coke can or for me, a Diet Coke can. Um, And it is literally a clump of dirt wrapped with black plastic and it has one seed from a coffee tree in it. And he's trying to regrow new coffee trees from the seeds. It takes a year to get one sprout out of the top of it. If that sprout comes, they will take it and they will replant it as a little bush that ends up growing to about a foot high over the next year to three years. And then if this makes it, they will take that out of the garden and they will literally plant a tree like this in the coffee plantation. But what I learned this week is that it takes three to five years for the coffee plant to begin to even sprout very little coffee beans, these little clusters of green that you can see there. And five to seven years for them to begin to turn red like this one does before it will eventually turn brown before you can pick it, squeeze it, brew it, and drink it. And they said to get good coffee, like coffee people enjoy, probably 10 years from start to finish. As I walked through Rigoberto's coffee plantation, and I was just so overcome with the Holy Spirit saying, Christian, will you have the patience to be a farmer in my kingdom? Will you put down the checklist? Will you pick up a shovel? Will you be a farmer in my kingdom? That evening, our group was meeting together and just talking about the most impactful part of the day. And I talked about walking through the coffee plantation and just what the Lord was laying on my heart about my desire to fast forward discipleship. Because I don't know if you know this, but most of us consider a disciple pretty much what we look like. And even though it took me 44 years to get to where I am spiritually, Sometimes it can be discouraging if the seed doesn't look like me in 44 days or 44 weeks or even 44 months. But what I'm saying to God is, God, you took this seed and 44 years later I look like this. How come everyone else isn't doing that in about four years? And I become a fruit inspector rather than a farmer. And as I'm I'm unpacking this to our group about what God laid on my heart, One of the men who was on our group who had taken a picture of me taking this tour that I wasn't even aware of sent me this next picture because I had separated from the group and was just kind of having my own kind of quiet time with God walking through this coffee plantation. He sent me this picture and just said, keep sowing seeds. Keep sowing seeds. It's funny that he took this picture at this time because I know exactly what I was doing at this point. I was looking at these little bags of seeds And I was wondering if God would allow me to pastor a church that would see people who gave their lives to Christ in Easter of 2021, not two weeks ago, a year ago. I was wondering if he'd give me a church full of people who was willing to be patient farmers. Because that's a year. 
And I think probably it takes longer to grow a really strong Christian than a really strong cup of coffee. Amen? So, Journey, my hope is that you will be farmers. And we'll look at the weeds and the wheat. We'll look at everything growing together and think, I'm just going to trust that it's wheat until God decides it's not. And I'm going to farm. Put down the checklist. Pick up the shovel. Let's farm together. Amen? It's an incredible application from this parable. The last, I'll go real quick, is basically this. We learn that there are two sowers in life and everything is seed. Say, what do you mean by that? We learned that every day there are two people sowing into your life, Jesus and the enemy, and everything coming in is seed. Say, what do you mean by that? I mean this, every experience you have this week is landing on your heart, and it's either making you more like Jesus and closer to eternity or less like Jesus and further from the kingdom of God. Everything you watch, everything you listen to, every conversation you have, every text message exchange, everything you walk through this week is going to land on your heart and make you more like Jesus and closer to eternity or less like Jesus and further from the kingdom. Everything. So Paul would tell the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3, if you have your Bible, you can flip there. If not, it'll be on the screen and then I'll end. We'll be done in three minutes for those of you who want to get out of here quick. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about everything being seed and making sure that you're filling your heart with the right things. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay any foundation other than one that's already laid, which is Jesus. And if anyone builds on this foundation, so once you've become a follower of Jesus, if you build on that foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, your work will be shown for what it is because the day is going to bring it to light. It's going to be revealed with fire. And the fire is going to test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss. But yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. They don't ever even look like wheat. But God knows inside they're just a Christian who never did anything fruitful or productive. But that's really his call to make. Remember, Paul said, Everything that lands on your heart this week is seed. It's going to make you more like Jesus and closer to eternity. It's going to make you less like Jesus and further from the gate. Everything is seed. So manage the intake carefully. Reproduce. Good seed reproduces. Find someone to pour into love. Start with your family. Reproduce. And don't lose hope. Because God is sowing wheat among the weeds. And that is a game changer for everyone. Amen? What has God said to your heart? And what do you need to do to apply it? Would you pray with me as we consider those things? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. What did God say to your heart and what do you need to do to apply it? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope the message that you heard is because we walk by faith and not sight and we believe there's life after this one, we want to persuade you to know Jesus. We believe having his seed planted in your heart will change everything. And if you came here today and you've tried everything but him and you realize that you are someone who's been broken by the sin in others' lives and your own, and you might cause more evil than good, today's the day to repent. That word means to turn around, start walking the other direction, and head towards Jesus. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus 
is the one God sent to forgive you, to love you, to save you, to change you. And you receive him as your savior, that you'll be saved. If you've never done that, you can do that today. Say, Christian, how do we do that? You just open your heart and you say yes to the God of the universe. Tell him that you know that you need him and you're finally ready to follow him. If you've never done that, I'll say a prayer you can repeat after me. You don't have to pray it out loud. It's not really even the words of the prayer, but just from your heart to heaven, if you need Jesus today, just pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Just repeat after me, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness of my sin. I need your healing in my pain. I need your cleansing in my past. I need your leadership in my future. So today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to believe it. Today by faith, I ask you to plant the seed of salvation into my heart and help me to grow into a fruitful Christian, even if it takes decades. Today, Jesus, I commit to follow you and I want to be a Christian. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you just prayed that prayer with me, in just a second, we'll let you know how you can tell us so we can pray for you and help you get planted in really, really good soil. If you're here today and you're a Christian, and for some reason you feel like it's your job to inspect fruit rather than to farm. One, I, I pray you'd ask Jesus to forgive you. Scripture actually teaches us to inspect fruit, but it's so that we can help develop it. Not so we can tear it out and throw it away. That's God's job. So would you ask God to give you the heart of a farmer, the spiritual tool of a shovel, and would you commit to see everything as wheat and to let God sort it out in the end among your spiritual community. Jesus, we love you and we need you. Thank you for taking our life that began as a weed and at some point filling it with the Holy Spirit so we could be transformed spiritually into wheat. And walking with us like Pastor Rigoberto walks through his coffee field. For some of us, it took longer than others. But eventually, Lord, fruit from our life that served the kingdom well. Thank you for those that you're still working on. Lord, we give you full access and control to our life, and we ask you to help develop us into fruitful Christians and help our church to be farming Christians in this community. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.